Step right up, fools. If you can place the correct guess on the price of oil, you'll win a teddy bear. This is Industry Focus. Hey fools, Taylor and Tyler here, talking about oil and gas on Thursday. I mean, I, I would really like to win one of those honey bears. I don't know, do you got them stored in the back there? Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. say 150, why not? Because right. you know, every other seem, price prediction nowadays seems to go all over the place, so why don't I just do something completely ridiculous out of everybody back else? back to uh, 2008? Yeah, where everybody's gonna be scared again, everybody's wondering peak oil, stuff like that. I'll throw just a stupid number out there like that, because everybody else is now too. My portfolio would certainly like 150. That's more than double some of the projections you've seen out there. Way more than that. And here's the funny thing, you know, it, so many of these almost seem like knee-jerk reactions. You know, about a month ago, so many banks were putting out their 2015 price outlooks for crude, and basically within two weeks, they've slashed them almost in half. Uh, the biggest one, Goldman Sachs. Uh, they just recently changed theirs, their six-month outlook, which was a few months ago, or last month, excuse me, $75. They've slashed it all the way down to $39. Good for them. Uh, Societe Generale, they've gone from 65 to 50. Citigroup is really ambitious. They're saying $63 for the entire year. So it just seems like all the stuff that these guys are saying when they make these price targets, mm -hmm. it sounds smart. You know, it's like, oh, um, U.S. drilling is going to be slower than expected. OPEC isn't going to cut. You know, there's these ton of assumptions that you have to make when you make these sort of price targets. But they don't know if these, price, if these actual assumptions that they make are going to be right. You know, yeah. OPEC could go back, they could make a cut, or you know, the capital spending in the U.S. could be extremely smaller than what they're predicting. So these price targets could mean null and void. Yeah, it's just one Excel, one cell in an Excel spreadsheet changes yeah, and their whole... Exactly, price. and it just gets thrown out the window. And that's the, the crazy thing about it. They all sound smart because they make a ton of smart-sounding assumptions, but those assumptions could be wildly wrong. And I thought, you, you hear this all the time, whenever something radical changes with mm -hmm. commodity prices, you know, we've seen, even seen metals prices drop significantly in the past they couple of years, or a couple days, yeah. actually. And I, I heard one of my favorite phrases, I was watching Bloomberg, and somebody said, this is the new normal. You know, it's that idea that, you know, oil's going to stay below 60 yeah. in perpetuity. Everything's going to be fantastic. Because it has fantastic. in the past, right? Because it has. And, you know, it just means forever. It's going to stay this way. But anybody's investor knows this. The new normal is that prices change. That's right. They, they go, go up, up they, go they go down. The, the normal is change. It's always going to change. And people should invest anticipating that these sort of changes are going to happen. And if you don't believe us, I mean, just look at multiple periods in history with oil or any commodity that has that's still around. You look at oil in 1981 and 82, fell off a cliff over a few months. A few years even. Rose back to $150 a barrel in 2008, fell off a cliff at the end of 2008 into 2009, rose right back to triple digits. Only a few months it took for 110, 115 to drop to where we are now in the 40s. But its price drops are so quick and so dramatic, but then you have these nearly decade-long strings of rising prices that really benefit investors mm. over the long haul. And that's why you have to find companies that can weather these downturns. Yeah, because it scares the bejesus out of you when you see these big price drops like that. You're, I've got to get it's out of swift. every yeah, single one right. of these things. It's, there's no way any of these companies can handle this. But, you know, if it only lasts 20, 30 days, yeah. everybody's right back up. It's not a big deal. Yeah, so we were looking at this article talking about people are now trying to get nitpicky, trying to pinpoint tiny little fractions of 
how you can identify good companies. Uh, but we saw an article that identified basins as being cheaper to drill in. They kind of tossed out the idea of reserves in these basins or amount of companies trying to go in and buy up these leases. They are just strictly looking at profit prices in these basins. And so we, there's several companies that fell across the entire spectrum. And I think we just want to talk about why it isn't just the basin that these companies are operating in, but you still, it all boils down to the company that you're investing in. Yeah, so what it was, it was, we're not gonna mention any names, Wall Street Journal, <laughs> but um, basically what it was saying was, uh, prop in price efficiency, like how much a dollar per barrel are you mm -hmm. spending on prop in to actually drill a well. Now prop in is the sand of the, the sand, the, the, yeah, the anything that they're using the to do that. And one of the funny things that it, I found fascinating about this is the places they thought were the cheapest, places in like the Rocky Mountains, like the Piance Basin and the Neobrara, mm -hmm. are some of the places where today it's a little bit more expensive to do other things. Right, you know, yeah. your takeaway capacity is more expensive. There's no rail there. Yeah, you don't have any rail capacity or anything like that. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where it was basically saying these companies won't be as affected because they're in these basins mm -hmm. where it's less expensive to do this one point right. of of the entire drilling process, which you know kind of seems like one of those tricks. You know, you're trying to find those little tricks to make your actual analysis work a little bit better. But it almost seems to me like almost a little reckless to throw out the idea of the holistic approach that you need to look when you're looking at a company. You know, I went down through the entire list of all the companies yeah, that there's were. There's some interesting names on the list. Interest, very interesting names and some things that you wouldn't expect, like a company like WPX Energy was at the top of the list because it was in that Piance Basin where cost efficiency is the best. But at the same time, this is a company that has, uh, it's already in the lower third of its peer groups in terms of EBITDA to interest expense. It means it's spending a ton of money on interest already before we've Very seen nice this. Very near term. Yeah. yeah, and before we've even seen this big price in uh, oil. Mm -hmm which could make the situation worse. And over the past two, three years, it's been a capital killer. It's spent more trying to drill than it's actually brought in on operational cash flow. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to see how just because they've got prop inefficiency means they're gonna be able to weather the storm when they've got a completely bloated balance sheet. Right. Yeah, I'm looking at a couple companies on here as well. Um, some of them you know, are no-brainers, like an EOG in my mind. Sure, if you wanna buy an independent exploration and production company, this might be one of the best, if not the best, up there with the ConocoPhillips. Um, and the Wolf Research called EOG the new Saudi Arabia of global oil. Barron's highlighted that um, earlier this week. And basically calling them a swing producer because they do produce so much oil in the United States. And a lot of their oil that they're drilling, because they're diversified, they're not paying attention to these basin-by-basin propping costs. Yeah. They can actually produce in the bigger basins that they're operating in at $40 a barrel and still make a 10% return after tax. You're talking about the Eagle Ford, which is their biggest basin, the Debakan, and some Delaware basins that they're operating in. But they're operating in pretty much every oil-producing basin in the U.S., but their biggest properties are in those high-performing basins and slowly get into the Permian as well. And one of the things that I do find interesting about EOG, and there's a couple other players in this space, some of the larger ones, EOG, Devon Energy, what yeah, they are what starting doing, yeah. what they're starting to do is, we'll call it the semi-integrated oil and gas producer. Sure. You know, when we think of oil, uh, integrated companies, they've got the refining, they've got the retail. What I mean by this is that EOG and Devon have gone out and taken a lot of those subcontractor roles 
uh, your water recycling and mm -hmm. water treatment Devin's sort of. Devon's at the forefront of that. Devon, EOG's been really big on that. They supply their own sand mm -hmm. for propens, so they're not having to pay out to another company. Right. Very simple, basic things like this, where they're able to cut costs that would eventually go to a profit of a you know, a supplier or something like that, and Call they're just... Ceramics on the prop and Exactly. Like that, yeah. By doing that, they're able to keep their costs down. So even though it may say, oh, that basin is the most expensive on prop and efficiency, but they're doing it themselves. So they're saving a lot more in respect to a lot of its peers in that place anyway. So again, when you see these sort of articles that try to find the trick to a your portfolio... rather than a specific... Yeah, you, you really need to yeah. dig into these companies to understand them a lot better than what these very simple explanations give. And, and two that stuck out to me that might be like, you know, if investors want to take a little risk, um, Apache and Chesapeake, uh, both selling non-core assets, Chesapeake trying to trying to turn that huge corner, almost a hairpin turn that they had to um, navigate around after Aubrey McClendon left, but they've got more liquidity. They just authorized a $1 billion share buyback. And I was actually waiting for companies in the energy sector to start saying, we're going to start to buy back shares. Chesapeake was one of the first that I heard of. Um, and $1 billion equates to 7 or 8% of their outstanding shares. So that's pretty meaningful. And these are likely attractive prices right now, especially because, I mean, these oil companies, they know, they've seen this before. And, and I, I appreciate them going to put their money to work at, uh, where I believe price appreciation is set to take place. Yeah, certainly having that little bit of extra cash on the balance sheet from sales like a Chesapeake mm -hmm. or a Devon Energy right now. Yep. Certainly looks pretty valuable. Yeah, yeah. You know, you look at those share buybacks could prove pretty prescient if, if they get involved over the next five, ten years, which is what you kind of have to look at this as as an investor. Um, you look at these riskier plays, they can, might provide a short-term pop, but you put out an article not too long ago about Exxon since 1981, 82. Was it like over 6,000, almost 7,000% total return? The total return when you add dividends and stuff like that. It's, it's basically the idea of, you know, if you're looking at it from a long-term perspective, you know, everybody has their own, I guess you could say, investment time horizon. And a very important thing that everybody should know is, you know, if you're looking to invest two to three years from now, five to ten, maybe even twenty to thirty, you need to know those time ranges, because it, it will have an immense, uh, it will dictate immensely what you're going to do. If you're looking only two to three years, buying an Exxon Mobil, who where you're basically generating all of your value from dividends, uh, dividend reinvestment, and mm -hmm. share buybacks. That doesn't really start to kick in until that 10, 20, 30 oh, yeah. year time horizon. If you have that time horizon, it's an amazing Why stock. Because this is a good time to. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, looking at a two, three year time horizon may not look as great. So, Fair point. yeah, anybody looking at the energy space and anywhere else, know what, you, know what your <laughs> know investment thyself. time, yeah, know thyself more than anything else. Uh, it'll be an extremely important thing going forward with your portfolio. Couldn't agree more. Well, that's it for today's show. I think if you want to send in your price estimates to TMF Energy on Twitter or energy at fool.com if you're an emailer, uh, but by all means, maybe in six months, we'll, we'll send the winner, Teddy Bear, at the very least. Teddy Bear or at least a Twitter shout maybe out or something out. like that's that. That's right. Maybe boost your follower account by a little bit. Uh, but that's all for Tyler. I'm Taylor. Fool on.